Tonight, I want to reiterate where we've been so that you'll appreciate this sixth and final skill, for lack of a better word, I think you need to have in your, in your toolbox so that you can rightly understand God's Word, bearing in mind that this project, interpreting, understanding the Bible, is not something for super-Christians. It's not something just for the most committed. It actually is a commission of Christ, a command of our God to each of us, which is why I have put at the top of our notes each and every week this text that should be in the back of your mind as you consider Christ's call to you to understand the Bible. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15, Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that has no need to be ashamed, rightly dividing or handling the word of truth. It's a command of God that we must labor diligently to rightly understand the Bible. So how do you do it? Well, I have suggested six skills we need to get down. We've addressed five so far, the sixth tonight. By way of review, don't forget that the first skill is, in my judgment, the most critical because it's the most skipped. The dirty little secret is most pastors skip skill one, and they jump to skill two and onwards. And the reason I want to remind each of you of skill one is because if you don't learn to see what's already there, you will end up not actually studying the Bible for yourself, but you'll just study John MacArthur. You'll just study R.C. Sproul. You'll study David Jeremiah, Adrian Rogers, whoever your favorite is. You will end up studying what somebody else has studied. It's very easy to do this. So the first skill, you don't have to be smart. You don't have to have much of an education. In fact, you can know almost nothing and kill it on skill one because all you got to do is have two eyes to see. To learn to see means to just slow down and look at what's there. It's the art of observing. It's slowing down and just paying attention to what you all too often skim over. How many of us have watched a TV show or a movie the first time through? You enjoy it well enough, but when you watch it through the second time, you pick up on so many things you missed. So many little details, so many little nuances. Maybe that's happened if you've ever read a book a second of time. The truth is, we tend to see, but not really see. Hear, but not really hear. Learning to see is just the skill of slowing down and asking the right questions. And the reason why this is so helpful is when you learn to, answer the, or when you learn to ask the right questions, you're now primed to find the right answers. How many of you have ever been watching the news, or maybe even a movie, or you've been at a museum, or you've just heard about something that's interesting to you, and you pull out your phone, and you Google it, because you want to learn more. You hear about some historical thing you never heard of, you pull out the phone or the laptop, and you're like, I don't know anything about that, I want to learn more. The only reason you did that is because somebody pointed it out to you. Somebody pointed out what you don't know, and you got interested, and you wanted to find out the answer. That's why looking, seeing what's already in the Bible is helpful because it will actually get you interested in what you don't know. The, I don't want you to raise your hands, but I trust this is true for most of us. Part of the problem with studying the Bible is there's a lack of motivation. You have no clue what you're reading. It seems so foreign that you're just not altogether interested. You can barely pronounce the name Tiglath-Pileser, much less know who he is or why he's in the Bible. But if you slow down and you read a passage that describes Tiglath-Pileser, you're like, I want to know who on earth this guy is. And so you just write in the margin, I don't know him, I want to find out. 
And before you know it, you're now interested and you're going to go down rabbit holes. This is the art of learning to see. One other skill, which I would describe as the other side of the same coin, is you, secondly, you need to learn to read which sounds a little ridiculous since I know most of us graduated high school, you know how to read, but the truth is so many of us are a lot like me. You ever find yourself reading and before you know it, you have no fat clue what you've read and you've been reading for five to ten minutes? You literally have read every word. It's not like you're not reading. You're actually reading and you don't know what you're reading. It's very easy to just inadvertently skim, to not really retain anything. And so there is an, actually an art to learning how to read literature. Go back and watch our film, uh, our video from session two so that you can get some tips and tricks and skills on how to read the Bible better. That's our second skill. Our third skill, I argued, was perhaps one of the most critical because you remember the old adage, in real estate, what are the three major considerations? Location, location, and location. And in interpreting the Bible, in hermeneutics, the great three considerations are context, context, Context. Context really is king. You'll never understand the Bible if you miss the context of whatever you're reading. I use that illustration that I think is, is fairly appropriate. It's just a good thing to remember that it's amazing. A word you think you would t normally understand, you actually have no fat clue what it means apart from context. If I said there's a large trunk here, you don't know what I'm talking about. It could be an elephant's trunk. It could be the trunk of a tree. It could be... Uh, the grandmother's trunk in your living room, you just don't know. You need more context to figure it out. So too in the Bible, you will always, always, always misinterpret a passage if you attempt to do so out of context. And we recall that a word's context is a sentence, and a sentence's context is a paragraph, and a paragraph's context is maybe a section. The next sec uh, per uh, context would be a chapter, then a book then maybe a testament, and then ultimately the whole Bible. You need to think about anything you're interpreting in its context, which leads us to our next skill. There's actually a context that's not grammatical. It's historical. You need to fourthly learn the background because, remember, the Bible is not Shakespeare. It's not just a beautiful piece of classic literature. You are not reading Beowulf. You are reading something that literally happened in time and space. The Bible is not in one jot or tittle fiction. It all happened literally. Real people wrote this to real people at a real time, in a real place, to a real people, in a real place, for a real particular reason. And if that's true, then you need to know who it was, and to whom it was written. You need to know where they were and where the people were that they wrote it to. You need to know, to the degree you can, all the reasons why they wrote it when they did. If you don't, you are sure to misinterpret. In the same way, if you went and found your great-grandfather's letter, and that letter talked about going overseas and leaving grandmother, great-grandmother behind, and you might initially read that and be offended and think, great-grandfather was terrible. Why would he leave? He wouldn't take my great-grandmother with him on a vacation to Europe? Of course, if you lack historical context, you might draw that conclusion and say, you know what, who are you to say that I'm wrong? But if you did just a modicum of historical research, you'd remember, oh, the historical cultural background reminds me that this was written during the Second World War. 
and that this brother was not going on a European vacation. When he made the phrase, I'm going overseas to Europe, he was talking about going to war. Of course he left grandmother. That's a simple, silly illustration. But the truth is, you can misread a lot in the Bible. This happens all the time. Time and again, people will read prophecies in the Old Testament and claim them as their own. When the historical cultural background demands that that prophecy was made exclusively, for example, to the people of Israel at a particular time in a particular place. You need to learn the background. Now, last week, if you were here, I showed you the widest context possible. We took a big step back and remembered that the Bible has one ultimate author. Though there are 39 to 40 human authors the Lord used, there is one ultimate author, the Spirit of God, who wrote the whole thing. And the whole Bible has one purpose, and it has one great storyline. And so I, re I reminded you that if you want to understand the Bible, you really need to understand it in relation to the whole story. Fifthly, you need to learn the story of the Bible. Because if you don't know the story, you will just look at an isolated scene and likely misinterpret it. This is why there have been well-intentioned young preacher boys that have preached David and Goliath, and they have tried to make a sermon about fighting the giants in your own life. Or they've tried to talk about having five smooth stones that are going to help you defeat all the, uh, the giants in your life. Now, that sounds all sweet, kind, and innocent, and, you know, it's not like it's going to lead you to hell. It's just not what the passage means at all. It's not a good way to preach it because that is not what the author meant by it. If you situated the story of David and Goliath in the wider story of the Bible, you would then recall that that story about David and Goliath is not about David's courage, and it's not about you and I finding courage when there are big things that seem insurmountable in our life. At the very most, that's just a minor application. The main point of that story is God was going to do what nobody thought was possible. God was going to defeat the enemies. God was going to bring judgment through the least likely person. It was not, in other words, propping David up. It was actually illustrating, yeah, David is nobody. He's a runt. He's nothing. But he had faith in God, which is very clear. David had a very strong, clear, decisive faith. And God honored that faith and did the impossible through him. This is why learning the story of the Bible is so critical. But this brings us to the sixth and final skill I want to commend to you. Because the truth is, having learned all these five skills, the problem is when you actually come to the Bible, you can apply these five skills to all the various passages you're studying and quickly run into a problem. Because let's say you take all these skills and you're trying to interpret the story of Adam and Eve. And so you're remembering, all right, Adam and Eve, this is real people happening in real time and real place, so I think I know what this literally means. There were really two people that did this. And then you go read Revelation. And you hear about Jesus holding seven stars and a sword coming out of his mouth, and you're thinking, well, that's a little horror show-ish, but okay. So he, I don't know, he must have a glove on to protect his hand from the stars, and he's, I don't know how he's doing that. I've seen like the guys on the magic uh, magicians that can have swords coming out of their mouth. It's a little odd. I remember when I was in sixth grade, I sat down one day in the summertime and I decided I had read the book of Revelation as a sixth grader and it kind of blew my mind. And I wanted to draw 
the throne room scene of Revelation 4. If you've ever read Revelation 4, then you'll know what I'm talking about. It's like a horror scene. I begin to draw this thing, and when I was done, I was like, this doesn't seem majestic at all. This seems like something that was rated beyond what I was allowed to watch at the time as a kid. This is crazy. So the problem is, I think most of us intuitively know the way you interpret Genesis, you're going to have to interpret Revelation a little bit differently, right? But how? How do we know we're supposed to? What if we're supposed to interpret it the same? Or maybe you go to one of Jesus' parables, and he says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. What if the kingdom of God literally is a mustard seed, and you start saving mustard seeds because God blessed them? Is that wrong? Which all of us are like, yeah, that seems pretty ridiculous. But why is it wrong? What if I'm right? Are there rules to help us know that there are very clearly different styles of writing in the Bible that demand we approach the text differently. Tonight, I want you to see, sixth and finally, that if you want to rightly understand the Bible, you need to not only learn to see, you need to not only learn to read, not only learn the context and the background and the story, you need to sixthly learn a word you may not be altogether familiar with, you need to learn what's called the genre. The genre. A genre is, for lack of a better word, I'm going to make this real simple. If you want to write a definition down, write this down. A genre is basically just a type of literature. Or you could use the word a style of writing. Or you could call it just a form of writing. We all know this to be true. Do you guys recognize that there is a world of difference between reading a history book and reading a book of poetry? They're different. This is why people tend to prefer just basic writing than the poetry, because poetry can be hard to understand. But, conversely, if you've ever written out the lyrics to a song, the way song lyrics are written out is not the way people talk, because that is actually poetry, it's just in musical form. There's clearly different styles of writing. And in the Bible, what I want you to see is that there actually are vast and varied styles, types, what we call genres of writing that you need to become just generally familiar with. You don't need to be experts on this, so don't feel overwhelmed like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to be able to get this down. This is a basic overview. You just need to be aware that when you're reading the Bible, there are very clearly different types of writing in the Bible, and you should approach those different types differently. I want to ask God to help us, and after I say amen, I'm going to explain just from basic experience why this is so painfully apparent, why this isn't something that pastors alone should think about. This is something that you should think about. So why don't you join me as we pray? Let's ask God to help us, and then we'll unpack the sixth principle of learning the genre. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm asking now that you would come and that you would help my brothers and sisters to not be overwhelmed by the task at hand. Indeed, would you help each of us be found as those who have done our best to present ourselves to you as workmen approved, who have no need to be ashamed, rightly handling your word of truth. And I'm asking this in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't you guys know by experience that it's not just what you say, it's often how you say it that matters. Isn't that true? For example, when you say the phrase, 
I'm as busy as a bee. That's a little weird, right? Because if you interpret that literally, I mean, I'm like saying that you're like a bumblebee, which is not altogether flattering. What do you mean you're as busy as a bee? That's an expression. That's figurative language. People technically call that a simile. But if you don't know that, if you're not looking at it figuratively, you might think, well, that seems a little rude. Why would you compare somebody to an insect? That seems a little condescending. Or, for example, how many of you ever heard uh, one of your children cry out, I'm starving, and you coldly respond, you'll be fine. <laughs> now, the truth is, when you say that, you're not unloving. You're actually quite loving because you understood that in that moment, that child was not speaking literally. They were using what's called hyperbole. They were exaggerating. You knew that. It didn't take much context. So it's because you know it's not just what you say, it's how you say it that really informs what you mean. Or, for example, have you ever heard somebody say, that apple fell far from the tree? That seems like a really weird observation. Oh, brilliant. I saw that apple roll too. Of course, that's not what you mean, right? We all know that when you use the phrase, that apple fell far from the tree, that's an expression. You might call it a metaphor. It's figurative language. It's talking about how, you know, typically it's like that child is a whole lot smarter than their dad. That apple's still rolling. He's way past his dad at this point. Typically, it's something ugly like that. Or have you ever heard somebody say when they're reading a book, the story just jumped off the page? Well, that would be really freaky if you meant that literally. And nobody ever does. Because when you use the expression, well, the story jumped off of the page, you're doing what's called personification. It's, you're basically taking something that's not alive and acting like it's alive. You're making it do something like a person would. It's just an expression to say, in other words, that story came alive. It just jumped right off the page. It's figurative language. It's not what you said. It's how you said it that's going to help people understand what you meant. Or, for example, how many of you have ever stood outside with a cup of coffee in your hand under your porch and said, oh, man, it's raining cats and dogs, which would be quite weird if that was the case. And, of course, you know that it's an expression. That's what you call an idiom. You, typically, it's cultural. If you said it's raining cats and dogs in Hebrew in uh, Israel, they probably wouldn't know what you meant. Or in Mandarin in China, I don't actually know if it's an idiom there, but they probably wouldn't know what you meant. But it's very clearly an English idiom. It's an expression that you just pretty much know. Where it came from, I don't even remember where it came from. I learned it years ago and I forgot. But it's an odd idiom, but you just kind of understand it. It's figurative language. Or one thing that you'll often find is people use oxymorons. Those are two words that seem like they contradict together. Put together. For example, have you ever heard anybody say, it's a deafening silence, which makes no sense. Or like you ever go to a restaurant and it says, we have as an appetizer jumbo shrimp. <laughs> shrimp by definition is like a shrimpy, it's tiny, but it's jumbo. Those are words that don't really go together, but you know what it means. And you know what it meant when I said deafening silence, even though those two words contradict. If you just read it literally, which is why oftentimes people that are learning English as a second language or English speakers that are learning another language as a second language struggle making sense of all these figurative statements because you're not used to the idioms. You're not used to all these expressions. It's easier to read everything hyper-literally. Or, for example, have you ever heard somebody say, 
I woke up to that rooster cock-a-doodle-dooling. I lived in Arkansas before I came here, and if you know anything about Northwest Arkansas, it is the home of Tyson Chicken, uh, Tyson Foods, and there are chickens everywhere, everywhere, and you hear roosters on every square mile of that part of the country. And so you'd hear people say cock-a-doodle-doo, which is really weird because what is cock-a-doodle-doo? They don't say that. You've never heard a chicken say, or a rooster go say, cock-a-doodle-doo. They don't do that. <laughs> it is our attempt to imitate the sound they make. That's what's called an onomatopoeia. An onomatopoeia is us attempting to imitate a sound. Some other onomatopoeias are, onomatopoeias are bark, rough, neigh, oink, moo. It's our attempt to imitate a sound. You wouldn't know that, though, immediately if you tried to interpret it literally. You're like, he didn't actually say that. Or, for example, have you ever had anybody say, that guy's just an honest Abe? Do you all know what that means? That'd be weird if you were taking it literally, like, his name's not Abe. Why are you calling him an honest Abe? But we know in America that's kind of an expression. It's with reference to Abraham Lincoln, who was known for his integrity and his honesty, and it's kind of carried down through the years as what some people call an illusion. We're alluding back to Abraham Lincoln, and we're saying, you're so honest, you're just an honest Abe. But if you lack that knowledge, you don't understand that that is said figuratively. Do you guys understand, in other words, that even in our own normal communication, it's not just what you say, it's how you say it that matters. And that is the same thing in the Bible. So for example, everything I just described is found straight in the Bible. For example, we talked about a simile. I said, I'm as busy as a bee. Well, you know, in the Bible, there are some similes. For example, Psalm 1 says, he is like a tree planted by streams of water. That's really weird if you tried to take it literally. I don't feel like it's a compliment to be described like a tree. But, of course, we know that using that word like tells us it's a comparison. It's not to be taken literally. So you don't actually have to, like, make some theology about trees or living near water to be a good believer. I know this sounds ridiculous, but people actually teach this stuff. That's what's insane about how crazy some people are with interpreting the Bible. Well, for example, there are some expressions in the Bible that are exaggerated, what we'd call a hyperbole, in the same way that a child yells, I'm starving. Jesus tells us, if your right eye causes you to sin, cut it out. Now, does he literally mean that? By the way, there actually is some debate, but most theologians would conclude that that is hyperbolic language, which is essentially saying you need to go to the utmost uh, expense to fight sin. Do what it takes to keep sin out of your life. It doesn't literally mean gouge out your eye, because the truth is it's a heart issue. You could gouge out your eyes, and you're going to find another way to lust is the point. So you need to remember that there's hyperbolic language. You need to be careful about interpreting things too literally. Or let's take the metaphor. We talked about the apple falling far from the tree. Well, there's a metaphor. There's several metaphors in the Bible. For example, uh, Amos, if you've ever read the book of Amos, in the first chapter, he calls all these... uh, Israelites that aren't obeying the Lord, he calls them cows. You cows of Bashan, he says. Now, that sounds terrible. What is he doing there? Why is he calling them a cow? It's a metaphor. He's comparing them to a cow. He doesn't literally have an issue with cows. It's just a comparison. Or let's talk about personification. When we were describing the story jumping off the page, well, in the Bible, you see some of this too. 
for the example, the Psalms talk about, let the rivers clap their hands and let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Now, was that something that happened in the old days and now we're just, unfortunately, you know, God doesn't talk to us anymore, neither do the trees sing anymore? What's going on there? It's reminding us that there's metaphorical, figurative language all throughout the Bible that you need to pay close attention to. There's some idioms in the Bible. Just like we know the idiom, it's raining cats and dogs. Do you remember uh, uh, how the people of Israel described the promised land? I remember the first time I read this, I had no idea what it meant when it said it's a land flowing with milk and honey. And I thought, is that good? I mean, that seems like an odd combination. And honestly, as a child, I remember thinking, how does milk flow in like the streams? That seems so bizarre to me because it's an idiom. It is a description of a land that's plentiful, that it's going to be rich in everything you would want. It's an idiom. Or let's talk about an oxymoron. Deafening silence. Another oxymoron would be, for example, do you remember Paul's famed sentence, to live is Christ, but to die is gain? Time and again, he uses these expressions that seem like they are contradictory to make a stark point. Or lastly, an illusion. I said he's an honest Abe. Think about this illusion in the Bible. Jesus says you're not going to get a sign. You're just going to get the sign of Jonah. Now, what does that mean? Is it going to be like Batman and Jonah's face? Is it going to shine in the clouds? What's the sign of Jonah? He's alluding back to Jonah being in the belly of the whale three days, so too Jesus will be uh, in the grave three days and then rise from the dead, be miraculously delivered from the grave. That is the sign of Jonah. The point is simply this. The Bible is filled. I gave you low-hanging fruit. There's a lot that are more difficult. The Bible is filled with a lot of odd expressions that are hard to interpret. Time doesn't permit us tonight to go into all the debates, and the truth is we wouldn't have time to settle them if we spent the next year, because theologians for the last 2,000 years have been wrestling with these hard passages. But suffice it to say, when it comes to you studying the Bible, what you need to learn is some basic rules on how to interpret the different types of literature in the Bible you read. In the same way that if any of you guys know the rules of baseball... Those rules of baseball do not apply in football. And the rules in football do not apply in soccer. And if you attempted to apply them in another sport, you'd make everybody else mad and you'd do a disservice to the sport. There are different rules for different sports. There are essentially different rules for different types of literature. Now, I don't have time to go through all those rules. The truth is, when I normally teach this in a seminary class, I'll spend multiple weeks going through this because there's that many. And I don't guess, gather that most of you are going to go that in depth anyway. I'm just going to give you the most basic of overview and then commend to you some resources so that you can do some study on your own to figure out how to make sense of the different types of literature in the Bible. First off, I think it might be helpful for us to consider together what are the different types of literature in the Bible. When you're looking at the Bible, so how would you classify it? How would you chop it up? I'm going to walk through these And as I do, I'm guessing these are not going to be too shocking to you. As I describe it, you're going to be thinking, oh, you know what, that's true. I've actually noticed that. I didn't know that's what that was called, but that makes sense. So the first type of literature, the first genre, you might use that word, that the Bible exhibits is what you might just call history, history writing. Some people call this narrative, historical narrative. There are several books of the Bible that just read like stories. What is it about a story that makes a story a story? Is it just that it begins with once upon a time? 
No, story form, by definition, has a plot. It usually has a sequential plot that's taking you somewhere. It's telling you something that's happening, generally speaking, in time and space. That's a good story. It doesn't read like a textbook where it's just facts. It's actually taking you somewhere. It's similar to a movie or a TV show. And the Bible has lots of parts of it that read kind of like a story. They just tell the history, typically in an interesting way. There are several books of the Bible that you could categorize as within this genre. So when you read it, you should expect them to read not altogether different from like a good history book. No surprise, Genesis reads this way. If you read the book of Genesis, it basically tells you the story of God creating the world all the way up to God setting Joseph up to be the ruler over Egypt. Then if you turn the page to Exodus, you'll notice the first half of Exodus, basically the first 19 chapters or so, or maybe the first 15, depending on how you want to classify it. Those chapters describe the history of Moses freeing God's people from Egypt. But then did you notice what happens in about the middle of the book of Exodus? No longer does it read well. A lot of people get tripped up midway through Exodus because the story stops and they stay put at Mount Sinai And all of a sudden we hear Moses start talking to us about all these laws. And it kind of is boring. It's like that part of the movie that you're just like, okay, come on, get through it. It it loses its uh, story. We're going to come back to what you classify that latter half of Exodus. That latter half of Exodus is not a historical narrative. So just put that on the shelf. We'll come back to that in a moment. You pick back up. Leviticus is the same thing. My word, Leviticus does not read like a story. You go to the book of Numbers. Oh, the story's back. Now we're picking back up where they left off. So read Numbers, and it feels like a story again. Uh, Deuteronomy, not as much. A little bit, but it kind of feels repetitive, and I'll tell you why in a moment. Then you go to Joshua and Judges and uh, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. These books all read like a story, almost in order. They read like you would any sort of good biographical history book. This is the history genre. Now, the reason you need to pay attention to this genre is you should expect this genre to interpret the facts that you need to know. When you're coming to it, you should expect it to be true. It's not exaggerating itself. It's it's reporting the facts. It's telling you a good, true story. You shouldn't read a history genre and say that's poetry. Now, here's why this is so important. Most Christian colleges in the United States defy this rule. Few don't. Praise God, every Southern Baptist seminary doesn't. But most Baptist colleges, even ones that'll tell you they're conservative, and again, I don't mean politically, I mean theologically conservative. They believe the Bible's true. They will read Genesis 1 and 2, and instead of interpreting it as history, God telling you what happened, they'll interpret it as poetry and say, oh, Adam and Eve aren't really the first two people. They're just like poetic representations of the first people. My college, which was a conservative Christian, formerly fundamentalist college that I went to, like they didn't even allow dancing up until like my sophomore year of college there. This is how conservative they were. Nevertheless, they taught that Adam and Eve weren't literally real people. They taught that Genesis 1 and 2 were poetic, just describing 
uh, how God brought the world into being through the long processes of evolution, and that Adam and Eve were the first two hominids, the first two uh, people that came from the Neanderthal class that God breathed the breath of life in, and all of a sudden they became aware of God. Now, why is that ridiculous? Two reasons. One, Jesus says Adam and Eve are real, so Jesus wins. He always has a trump card. He actually believed Adam and Eve were really the first two people, which settles it for me. But the second thing is, when you read Genesis, it's very clear that Genesis is not meant to be a book of poetry. It reads like a history book. Why would you just selectively decide to interpret it poetically? I'll tell you why. It's because the people that do that come at it not wanting to believe it. They don't want to believe Adam and Eve are real. They want to believe what the evolutionary scientist teaches, and they therefore force the Bible to conform to it. That's what's happening today with LGBTQ issues. Heaven forbid somebody as influential as Andy Stanley is attempting to do this this moment. He's trying to make the Bible conform to the cultural moment we're living in. Don't let it happen. This is the first genre, so to speak, that you need to think about. These books that I lined out, you should expect them to report the facts. Don't expect them to be representing things in a generally figurative way. Now, that's not the only genre in the Bible. Another genre you need to think about is what you might call the law genre. This kind of reads like a legal document. It's this legal thing that's filled with a bunch of commands and rules. The latter half of Exodus is this. It's where God gives the Ten Commandments and all the other uh, rules. Leviticus is straight law from start to finish. And then Deuteronomy literally means, uh, in the Latin, the second giving of the law. Deutero, that's the second. Onomy is the law. It's the second giving of a law. You just have a bunch of law written out in there as well. So when you're reading the book of the law, you need to remember something about it. Why did God give the law? Anybody remember? Did he give the law for you and I to be able to fulfill? The truth is, the Pharisees and the Sadducees thought that they could keep it. So they worked their darndest to perfectly keep the law, to earn their righteousness before God, failing to take into account that the reason God even gave the law was to show them just how holy he is and how unholy they are. It was his way of demonstrating to lost humanity, you are utterly unlike me, and if you want to come near me, you have to perfectly keep this, which is impossible, proving that there's no way, shape, or form you can ever come before me. The law was basically a shadow pointing to the one who would come and finally fulfill the law perfectly and save us from our inability to keep the law. Jesus. The whole law, in other words, points to Jesus. So when you read the law, you shouldn't read it as, you know what? I shouldn't eat blood, which is kind of gross anyway, but I shouldn't eat blood. Or, you know what? There's these weird laws about not eating shellfish or mixing different fabrics, so I got to stop that. I got to think about these sort of things. The truth is all those laws were intended to point us to Jesus, so when you interpret the law, you should interpret it as pointing to Jesus. That's a rule when it comes to the law genre. Okay, so we've got the history. We've got the law. What else do we find in the Bible? Well, here's one that's uh, fun. Everybody loves it. It's just notoriously difficult. That's poetry. Poetry is beautiful. Most people will tell you their favorite book of the Bible is the book of Psalms, and there's a reason. Psalms is one of the most beautiful 
emotional books of the Bible. It just resonates with people. Book like Psalms, Song of Solomon, uh, Lamentations is pretty poetic as well. Now, the reason you need to pay attention to poetry is poetry, by definition, doesn't read like a letter. What are some common features of poetry? They tend to repeat themselves. And not because they're actually trying to distinguish between two words, they just repeat for the sake of repeating. Most songs you sing repeat the chorus four or five times. Is it because you actually need to hear it four or five times to get the message? No, it's just, it's poetry. That's, it's a way to emphasize it, but it doesn't literally need to say it again. In the Psalms, you're going to see what's called parallelism. Phrases are repeated often in Hebrew, and it's just a way of communicating. So, the heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19 says, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Those two things mean the same thing. I have seen a guy try to distinguish between the heavens and the sky. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork, and make two sermon points off that. That is not good, because they literally mean the same thing. It's a poetic way of saying the same thing. You'll see that time and again throughout poetic literature. So when you're reading any poetic literature in the Bible, remember, it is going to be interpreted according to some specific rules. Now, the truth is there actually are several rules that I don't have time to go into, but I can commend some resources to you later if you are so desirous to dig in and learn a little bit more about poetry. Okay. Now let's move on to everybody's favorite and perhaps the most notoriously difficult to interpret, the infamous genre called prophecy. Man, this one gets messed up a lot. Prophecy, that is that form of literature that's basically God speaking through somebody in a declarative way, and it typically involves them exhorting or admonishing somebody with a lot of symbolism about something that's to come. Usually they're either predicting something that's going to happen or telling them that judgment's coming. Prophecy. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. All these men are what we call the major and minor prophets who communicated God's message to God's people at a most difficult time. Now here's the thing about prophecy. If there's one thing you need to remember about it when you're interpreting it, all prophecies in the Bible came, from a came to a certain man at a certain time to certain people at a certain time. So when you read a prophecy, you must start by understanding who said it and to whom before you start thinking about claiming it for yourself. You need to take that seriously you ought not just instantly grab one of Isaiah's prophecies and claim it as your own or claim that some prophecy is about to be fulfilled in this day. TV is filled with a bunch of evangelists that just are making junk up about prophecies. And you know what the dirty little secret is? Two things about preaching prophecy. There's a reason you don't hear Clint and I do it a ton. One, it's titillating. Everybody wants to hear about it. Don't you want to hear how the news today is fitting into the Bible? Everybody wants to know if Iran and Iraq and everything else on the news is somehow fulfilling something at the moment. So it, it gets attention. If you want to fill a church, just start talking about prophecy. There's one problem with it. A lot of guys do it just for the sake of it grabs attention. The second thing is almost always wrong. 
I want you guys to just imagine for a moment. Some of you were alive, but you would have been awfully young. Um, Imagine if you lived uh, and were thinking pretty seriously about all the prophecies in the late 1940s. We had just won World War II, the worst war in recorded history. The people of Israel, who had been scattered for 2,000 years, had just come together and formed a country. The atom bomb had just been dropped. It seemed like wormwood from the book of Revelation. It seemed like this, this is apocalyptic. Everything's lining up. The United States seems like a very distinctly Christian nation. Billy Graham is in the White House. All the presidents consider themselves Christians. They, they seem to be men that fear the Lord. The nation is still at that time praying in the schools. It just feels like, it feels like we might be like almost the new Israel of sorts. Israel is actually coming back together. We've just defeated these evil atheists in the communist bloc. It, it feels like something amazing is happening. Surely this is the end. Surely Christ is coming back. Everything is lined up. Perfectly, And by the way, that is probably, sociologically speaking, why there was such a great revival that broke out in the United States in the 40s and 50s. Because in the 40s and 50s and beyond, we as a nation had a common enemy, an atheistic enemy, communist, you know, east, or whatever you want to call that cardinal direction. We had won. We were on the ascendancy. You had these great guys who are terrific orators who will spend forever in heaven with, by the way, so don't hear me speak ugly of them. I praise God for them preaching this gospel, and it feels like the end has come. And then, what are we, 70 years, 80 years removed from that now? And it hasn't come. And so now the next thing happens. The second time it became a big deal was in the early 1990s, the Gulf War. People began to think that was the end. And then 9-11, and then the Iraq and uh, Afghanistan War. Is that kind of the end? Or is all this junk going on with Russia? Is this going to be the end? Gog and Magog, I don't know. The truth is, brothers and sisters, all these guys that tell you that they know, don't know. They don't. They are guessing. And I would caution you on putting too much stock in a lot of prophecy guessing. Because it's just that, guessing. Here's what you should do when it comes to prophecy in the Bible. Become an expert not on what it might mean. Become an expert on what it does mean. We actually can figure out what it meant. Go figure out why did Amos say that to his people in that day. Why did Isaiah say that? Figure out historically and grammatically what did it mean, and then, only then, can you start judging whether or not there might be some parallels or there might be some additional foreshadowings involved with the coming uh, times. That is my uh, plead to you on interpreting prophecy. When you go to the Bible and you read prophecies, don't read it with the newspaper open next to you. Read it with grace to you on your computer next to you and figure out what did it mean then, okay? There's the uh, genre of prophecy. Now, in addition to that, I want you to briefly consider with me the letters. That's everybody's favorite because the letters or the epistles of the Bible, they read the most plainly. Children are most likely to understand the letters because they read the way most of us talk. They're written by disciples like Paul and John and James and Peter, etc. They were written from that writer to a church, typically. 
and they just kind of read the way you might write a letter. I have something I need them to say, and I'm saying it to them. That's pretty easy to interpret. You can just take it at, generally speaking, face value. That's a letter. You know those books like Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1 and 2 Peter, 1 and 2 3 John, and Jude. But then there are some books of the Bible, let's go back to the Old Testament, that feel poetic, but they're different. Have you all ever noticed that the book of Psalms reads a whole lot different from the book of Proverbs? That's because Proverbs would be better classified not as poetic literature, We should categorize it as wisdom literature. A proverb, which you also see this type of literature in Job and Ecclesiastes, it's like, honestly, I think it's the hardest genre to interpret, or maybe tied with another that I'm going to talk about in a moment. It's very difficult. The hardest book of the Bible, I think, to preach is Proverbs, because it reads like all these short, little, pithy statements, and it's very easy to say more than the proverb says. So, for example... Here's a proverb that a lot of people claim wrongly. How many of you, rhetorically, don't raise your hand, have privately claimed the proverb, raise up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he won't depart from it? And so you do it to the best of your ability, imperfect as you are, and then your child does not go in the way he should go. And you wonder, did God lie to me? He didn't keep his promise to me. And what you have failed to take into account is that that proverb, like all proverbs, is not a promise. It's what you might call a general principle. It is, in other words, saying, if you want, by God's grace, for your child to go the way they should, you must do all you can to raise them up in the way they should go. That is how you interpret Proverbs, they are general principles. It is not a contractual promise that if you do A, you are going to get A. It's not that. The Bible never talks that way. That's kind of prosperity gospelish. I'm obeying so that I get the exact result I want. Not to mention, how horrible would that be? I can't tell you how many godly parents I know, imperfect as they are, godly parents who have children that are wayward. And it breaks their heart despite all of their best efforts. Can you look back? Of course, hindsight's always twenty twenty, And you see all kinds of things you wish you could have and should have done differently. But you can't beat yourself up for it because at the end of the day, God is God and not you. And that child belongs to him and not you. So remember, when you're coming to something like a proverb, you need to not interpret it as some sort of literal promise. They're almost always general wisdom principles that order God's universe. Okay. You may have never considered this, but another genre of the Bible is what you might call gospel. Now, the reason we actually call the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, their own genre is because they are a little different from like the history books of Genesis, etc. Have you guys ever found it interesting that the gospels leave out a ton of stuff? I mean, don't you want to know everything there is to know about Jesus? John even tells us if everything was written down that he did, the world couldn't contain all the books. But man, you could have given us a little more than this because Matthew, Mark, and Luke repeat themselves a ton. I, like, seriously, where, why, are we, why do we have almost nothing about his childhood? Like, we have him born, uh, we have him dedicated, we have him as like a 12-year-old talking to the people in the temple, and then all of a sudden he's 30. And then when he is 30, 
We don't have all the details. We want to know like what's going on. And we're just getting major highlights. And it's always a highlight of somebody that saw it. That's the key. Do you want to know what this genre is called? This genre that we call gospel is a genre because it's basically an eyewitness account. The gospel genre is an eyewitness genre. It is, in other words, it's like being on the news and getting somebody interviewed that saw everything happen. And you're getting their perspective on what they saw. Of course, we believe that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John were inspired by the Spirit, so this isn't a wrong uh, eyewitness account. But it is four different eyewitness accounts all agreeing on the salient details of the most significant things that happened in Jesus' ministry, which means they're not always chronological. If you actually go read the gospel accounts, they're generally chronological, but not literally. There's parts where they jump back and forth. And sometimes they have what seems like contradictory things to say, but it's actually like two different angles of the same story. If you go uh, follow any legal shows, you'll know that when they're interviewing witnesses, honestly, it just depends on your perspective on what you saw. Have you guys, any of you ever followed um, uh, the terrible assassination of President John F. Kennedy? If you go read all the reports, it's amazing how conflicting all the eyewitness accounts are. And it's not because they're all lying. It's because not everybody was standing in the same place. Some people thought they heard more gunshots than they did because of ricocheting. Or some people thought they saw certain things because they had a particular vantage point and others didn't. So too, these gospel accounts are eyewitness accounts from different men at different times and places all seeing it. So when you read the gospels, you need to consider who wrote what gospel you're reading. And you also need to remember that it is purposely not telling you every detail. So you can't say, since a detail's missing, therefore there's no way that could have happened. You've got to say that this is just an eyewitness account. He wasn't detailing absolutely everything for us. Okay, the Gospels. Which brings us to the most notorious of them all. If you think prophecy is hard, prophecy has got nothing on what you might call the apocalyptic literature. That's like prophecy on steroids. Apocalyptic literature, if you want to differentiate it from prophecy, some people don't. Some people just lump them together, and that's okay with me, by the way. But I'll differentiate them because have you guys noticed if you go read the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and others, they read a lot different than Revelation. Have you ever noticed that the latter half of the book of Daniel reads a whole lot differently than Isaiah? He's using wild and fantastic imagery that's like hard to wrap your mind around. Then you go read Revelation, and it's like, why haven't they not turned this into a movie? This is a movie script that would beat anything on the big screen today. It's astounding, and it's filled with all this crazy symbolism that you don't know what to do with. That's what we call apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic is from the Greek word apokalupsis, which means to unveil. And it is a way that God has unveiled that which has not happened yet. So we have two problems now. One is this hasn't happened yet. So we cannot do historical research to figure out what happened. It hasn't happened. Second problem is it's using highly symbolic language which means it's very debated on what it means. For example, the 144,000. Is that literal? Like, will there be 144,000 redeemed people? Will they be Jewish? Or will it be from all the nations? 
are there 144,001? Uh, or is it literally 144,000? Or is that a representative number? A lot of people will try to think that it's just a representative number, but then if you think that, what about the millennium, the thousand years in Revelation 20? Is that literally going to be a thousand years? Or is it like a general time period? What is it? There's a lot of debate. This is where we would have to say genuine Christians can agree to disagree on a lot of these details because it is hard to wrap your mind around all the crazy apocalyptic symbolism. Or the trumpets. Are there literally going to be... Are we going to see like trumpets happening when, you know, the sixth trumpet comes and then all these plagues fall? Is that literally going to happen? Or the bowls? Are we going to look up in the sky and see a bowl get like poured over? Or is that symbolic? Is it symbolism? Well, the apocalyptic genre tells us it is symbolic. We know it's symbolic. We just don't know to what degree it's symbolic. It actually might be symbolic of itself. It actually might have a whole lot of import to it, but there may literally be a bowl. I'm not saying there's not. We don't know. There's great debate on how this is going to happen. And the truth is, my friends, none of us will know till it happens. So if you hear a pastor preach it just a little bit too fervently, just remember that they don't know. They don't. And I have tried. I, I want as my life's goal before the Lord takes me home to have the privilege to preach through the book of Revelation. I keep goading Clint that, you know, he's in his mid-50s and he hasn't done it yet. I'm like, bro, time's ticking. You've only got, you got a few good years left, brother. <laughs> I like to say that to him. I told him I can't wait for that day when I have to help him up the stairs to the pulpit. <laughs> this is on video. Sorry, brother. But the truth is, it scares me to death because it is so filled, Revelation and the latter half of Daniel for that matter, with symbolic apocalyptic language that it is admittedly quite difficult to wrap your mind around. So let's put a bow on it and just wrap this all up. The truth is, the Bible, though it is one great book with one great story, with one ultimate author, it is composed of 66 books with a whole bunch of variety of pieces of literature. So when it comes to interpreting it, you just need to remember that when you're interpreting the Bible, you need to take into account all the varied types of literature. You need to think about the genre. It'll help you apply the first skill. It'll help you learn what to look for. So now when you're reading poetry, you're going to look for words that repeat. Or when you're reading historical narrative, you're going to look for details and take them to be true. Or when you're looking for apocalyptic literature, you're going to be looking for, okay, well, what does that symbol mean? And what does that symbol mean? You're going to read the apocalyptic literature differently than you're going to read the uh, historical literature. So your second skill is going to be applied differently depending on what book you read. When it comes to context, you're going to apply context differently. In a historical book, you're going to apply context like you would in any historical scenario. What happened before this and what happened after this? But when you get to the apocalyptic literature, you're not really thinking that way. In fact, Revelation isn't totally sequential. You're going to start thinking about the context of, well, are there any other images that will, might help me interpret what on earth he means by the stars being in his hand? That's a different way to apply the context clues. The historical background's the same thing. You might apply the historical background to the seven churches that he writes to in Revelation 2, but you might not depend on it as much when he talks about the whore of Babylon at the end of the book, because he's clearly talking symbolically at that point. It's going to help you apply the storyline, because you know that the story is ending at Revelation, and it's things that have not happened yet. My friends, in other words, if you want to understand the Bible... You not only need to learn to see and read, you not only need to learn the context and the background, you not only need to learn the grand story, 
the final thing you need to take into account is that those five skills are going to help teach you the what. But you need to remember that the genre is how the what was said. And remember, what you say is as important as how you said it, or how you said it, I should say, is as important as what you said. The how really does determine the meaning. So you need to take in this sixth and final principle so that you don't misinterpret and claim a prophecy that is not meant for you to claim or to wrongly think that something that's literal history is actually just suggestively poetic or over-literal interpret the book of Revelation and say, I can't wait till that star falls down or I can't wait till I see that big bowl pour out when that is probably not a good interpretation of the book. Now I know as we conclude our study of these six weeks, it probably feels overwhelming. But let me conclude with this simple analogy. While it will admittedly feel overwhelming, I want to encourage you to just start doing some clunky practice of all this. And here's what will happen. If you've ever learned golf, you know there's a lot of rules. Feet need to be shoulder length apart, knees bent, arms straight, hand in just a certain position. You need a back swing with your left arm just straight. You need to keep your eye on the ball and keep that knee there and pivot and don't move your feet. The truth is, though, you can learn all those skills, but if you go address the golf ball and you're thinking, all right, left knee straight, left arm right, you are going to make the worst swing. If you are thinking about all those principles, it'll be terrible. You will not be a good golfer, even though you actually could teach Tiger Woods form. But if you just stop thinking about it, you know it, You've practiced it, and now you just stop thinking of it as a science and think of it as an art. Before you know it, you will swing, and Lord willing, have a better shot, uh, swing than I do, and you'll hit it. Start practicing. It's going to feel clunky. Think about your, all your form and just start learning these six skills. And if you start doing them day after day, before you know it, it'll be second nature. You're not even going to have to think of it in terms of six skills. It's going to feel like one skill. And when that day comes, may it be found true of you, as I pray it will be found true of me, that we have to the best of our abilities done our best to present ourselves to God as one approved, workmen who have no need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Let's pray and let's ask God to make this true in my life and yours. Father in heaven, I thank you for these brothers and sisters that have hung in here. And I pray that you would so move that they would be found faithful to fulfill your command in 2 Timothy 2.15. Would you grant us the grace to know, understand, and love your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good night, everybody.